in the crazy world we live in, he who owns the oil controls his future. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. And with me today, I'm excited to have RJ Burr. RJ, how are you doing today? Oh, Todd, I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm doing fantastic. Had a great conversation so far with you. And, and now we're finally recording. We should, I said, I said, we should have been recording all of this stuff before because there was a lot of great stuff. So maybe let's tackle some of that stuff. But you are a third generation producer of American oil, born in the industry. Um, RJ was on his first location before he could walk and has been fascinated by the production of oil his entire life. Within three months of graduating high school, uh, Mr. Burr funded his first partnership and never looked back. RJ is the senior VP corporate operations at Panex um, with main focus on Gulf, Cor- Gulf Coast. Uh, your company, his companies have raised and deployed over $300 million in upstream development and have partnered with some of the largest oil and gas companies uh, to develop several million barrels in reserves. So with that said, RJ, give us a little bit more uh, about your background and really about what your focus is today. Well, I... When you look at everything going on in the world, there, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of yeah. really indecision. A lot of people don't know what's up, what's down, what's left or what's right. And, and I've found when you get in moments like that and there's so much stuff floating around, if you knock off all the dust and get back down to the roots, everything's pretty simple. And, and what I mean by that is, is take the oil industry. The oil industry by itself, personally, I believe is the most outstanding industry the world's ever known. Because when you look at what economies and civilizations and countries have evolved to once they introduce energy, the energy of oil and petroleum into their societies, it's it's unheard of. I mean, when, when when you look at what really runs the world's economy, well, I'll put it to you this way. Here about two years ago, you remember when the when the silver crunch happened and everybody right. realized there was more paper than there actually was silver. Yep. Well, I have a lot of partners. In fact, most of my partners, when they when you look at their financing, they really have three piles of money that they work from. The, the first pile is their that's their living money. That's their family money. Nobody touches it. That's what they pay their bills with. That, that's what they do everything with. That is sacred. Well, their second pile is really is really their their safe money. And that safe money is money that they put into gold, they put into silver, they put into real estate. It's something that they want it to grow, but that's not the main priority. The main priority is when they come back to that pile, they want to make sure that there's just as much, maybe a little bit more there. Well, their third pile, that's their growth pile. That, that's the pile that they put with me. That's the pile that they, they want to turn one into two, two into five, and so on and so forth. Well, all of a sudden, when that silver crunch happened, my partners started looking at their safe pile, that middle pile, and they came out from under the ether. They said, whoa, this is just manipu- This is just as manipulated as everything else. And so all of a sudden, they started really having questions on where they were going to put 
that saved money. And, and so that kind of started me on a journey where I started really just trying to figure out a way to help them. That, that's, I, you know, if, if anything, I'm here to win for my partners. W without my partners, I don't have a business. And, and so every decision we make has one foundation to it. Is it good for our partners? Because if it's not good for them, we're not going to do it. And, and so when you sit down and started looking at it, it was, oh, it's about 3.30 in the morning one night. It hit me. And, and I mean, I, I'm one of those guys that when I start pulling on that thread, I'm going to unravel the entire sweater. And uh, I shot up in bed and it, I realized, hang on. And now you thought you're going to actually think this is funny because it started out semi as a joke and, and that I would ask my, my partners these questions, waiting for somebody to give me an answer that trumped me. Well, two years later, nobody has. And, and how I phrased it is if you pull water, food and oxygen out of the mix, name one product on the planet and more demand than oil. And, and you can't really, I mean, you might say medicine, you might say, you know, there's a couple that you might say that could go, but the fact of the matter is oil is in demand more than anything because without it, all of our economies come crashing to a stop. Yep. And, and so when you sit and look at oil, well, personally, I believe it's the most balanced product when it comes to what is its value. And the reason is you have just as many people, half the population want it to be free and the other half the population want it to be 500 a barrel. And so you have equally opposing forces pulling on every barrel of oil. And when I popped up at 3.30 in the morning, I said, well, hey, if you're betting on gold is your value to hold the value or silver, or why wouldn't you bet that on oil? Pull your money out of the rat race, place it in oil, buy reserves, and let it sit there. Because when you come back years from now, guess what? Unless somebody comes up with an invention like the printing press, Oil's all we have. And, and so you, you sit down and you look at all these assets and you say, hey, we have the greatest commodity on the planet. We have a lot of it. And if we can give our partners and put our partners in a position where they can maximize the effect of what that oil can do, because Dot, everybody's in the oil business, wh whether you want to be or not. We are all consumers. What I try to do is help my partners get on the producing side. And so it's just, it's really a, it's a labor of love. I mean, man, we, we, we try to edge. I want my guys to know everything about what we're doing. I, I don't want any guessing. Uh, heck, you can go to our, our website, panx.us, and, and you can download. We have oil and gas 101, which is the basic general hmm. education on oil, on the oil industry, where it started, how it developed and where it is now. Uh, oil and gas 102 is really the tax side of oil. It, it's in my opinion, the greatest tax shelter out there. I mean, every time you get involved in oil and gas and you drill a well, Uncle Sam's going to pay for roughly 30, 35% of it right off the bat, above line deduction. Right. Man, give me that six days a week and twice on Sunday. And, and so when, when you look at everything that oil can do, man, if you can put your partners in a proper position where they can take advantage of it, well, look at right now. This was something, $100 oil was really something we saw coming a couple of years ago. And it's not because of Russia and Ukraine. It's because of the economics, the foundational principles of the market. We're not investing enough to find more oil. We're consuming too much, and there's nothing to replace it with. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I, go ahead. I want to. I can tell you you love it, right? You're passionate about. It. I can see it. I can feel it. I want to play a little bit of the bad guy here okay. because oh, the oil industry 
right now is a bit of the enemy, right? Oh, it's, absolutely. It's it's being portrayed as this bad, uh, this bad thing that's going to destroy our world. And so now there's this big push, and they're not just now. It's been for the last you know several many years, but there's this big push, especially now, to try to be all clean energy, right? And, and whether it's clean or not is a totally different debate. <laughs> but there's this big push to, you know, we, we're going to have these electric operating cars and we're going to reduce our footprint and all this kind of stuff, which is is essentially going, let, let's say, look, we want to get rid of oil. So let's let's talk about that for a little bit. How is that affecting your industry? And what's your, I guess, what's your answer to that as well as people, you know, really are, are kind of slamming the oil industry, trying to stop oil production. Obviously, Biden stopped uh, some pipelines that affected in my area. I'm up in, in, in Minnesota, so we had pipelines um, running through uh, the area and in, in North Dakota and so on. So how is that affecting your business? What is it kind of, let, let's, let's play on that for a little while. Well, now I, I, life's been hell since my crystal ball broke. Yeah, and right. So we, <laughs> and so, Same so we, we I, I don't try to really guess on people's motivations. Yeah. I just look at the acts of what they're doing. And when you look at, uh, oh, look at green energy. I mean, you look at, uh, well, I, I had a partner come to me a couple of years ago. And this was where oil and gas 103 came from. And, and she said, because she was talking about green energy and, and mm -hmm. replacing oil and what everybody's goals were. And so, so I did a deep dive on, on green energy and, and just, it, it, it was something that, like I said a minute ago, once I start pulling on the thread of the sweater, I'm going to unravel the whole sweater. And what I found is they're setting us up for failure. And, and what I mean by that is just look at the oil industry. In 2014, industry-wide, worldwide, we invested roughly a trillion dollars in upstream development to find more oil. At that point in time, a hundred, well, a trillion dollars, we were producing anywhere from 90 to 95 million barrels a day worldwide. Okay. Well, we were consuming roughly a hundred million barrels a day worldwide. Oh, wow. So at that point, we were running about five to 10 million barrels a day a deficit. And so in 2014, that trillion dollars today, we're going to be lucky to hit 300 billion in upstream investment. So we've dropped roughly 65, 70% of our total investment to find more oil. So now you take that factor and set it on one side. Then you look at the consumption side. Like I said, before the pandemic came in, we were running about 10 to 13 million barrels a day short. Now we're 13 to 15 million barrels a day short. They're projecting by 2030 that we're going to be close to 70 million barrels a day short of producing what we consume. And, and so this amount in reserves right now to be because uh, we're running short. Where's it coming from then? Well, it's it, we're running. You have what is in what we use. Well, you have you have stockpiles that have been built up. And, yeah. and so you're so running these enough. deficits and that's what you're eating into. So we're eating and, and into so, all these stockpiles that reserves. Well, and then you, and then you have the lack of replacing that oil. And, and so yeah. you're running, you're running a game where 
you have 150 miles to go before the race is over, but your gas tank only has 110 miles worth of gas in it. And, and so when you set that up and you look at those two factors alone, that paints a picture of where oil prices will go. Now, the only thing that would change that is if there's an alternative, if there's something else you can replace oil with. And so when I started researching that, well, if we were investing a, roughly a trillion in 2014, where's that other 700 billion going now? Those companies did, just didn't stop investing. Yeah. Well, they started putting it in green energy. They started putting it in solar panels. They started putting it in wind turbines. They started putting it in different areas to try to create energy. Well, the fact of the matter is they discovered the first solar panel in the mid 1800s. They've been studying converting the sun into energy for almost 150 years now. Well, I hadn't figured it out yet. Using the most modern technology available to have a solar farm create the amount of energy the United States consumes every year, we would have to have a solar farm the size of New Jersey, and the sun would have to shine 365 days a year, 24 hours a day at Arizona summertime intensity to create the kind of energy that we'd need. And so just the, the science is not there. Then you look at the wind farms. I mean, you look at the amount of destruction of material that we would have. It's just not economically feasible. Now, knowing human nature like I do, if, well, personally, if I had invented the greatest, and, and that's what it's going to be. When somebody invents something to replace oil, it's going to be one of the greatest inventions in human history. Well, if I had made that invention, invention, don't you think I'd tell a few people about it? Yeah. Nobody's nobody's seeing that they've created the next best thing. They're in, they're investing in studying these old technologies. So now you look at motivation and you think on it. Well, if clean energy is really the goal, if it's not control, let's just let's pull the conspiracies out and let's say it's not about control. Well, what's it about then? Well, if it's about clean energy, natural gas and nuclear would be the route to go. Yet they're not pointing towards that. I, I mean, the I, U.S. I'm glad you just mentioned that because that's I've been saying that for so many years. If you really want clean energy, let's figure out how to use uh, nuclear in, in a, the proper way and, and natural gas. Right. And that those are the cleanest energy sources that actually give you real energy. Right. Sol solar, like you said, doesn't give you real energy. And it. By the way, it's probably not that clean because what are you going to do when those solar panels break down? What, what do you do with them? Yeah, no, you have to get, I mean, th think of it this way. To create one Tesla battery, yeah. you have to move half a million pounds yeah. of material for one battery. Well, I had a partner the other day sent me a picture and uh, it was a split screen picture. And on one side was a pump jack. So here you get, you know, the little horse that's out on the field that yeah. creates a yeah. pressure. Yeah. So you have this big, pristine, beautiful hill with one little pump jack on it. Yeah. Really, in, unless you, if you scan back, chances are you wouldn't even see the pump jack. Yeah. And then on the other side of the page, you had a lithium mine where they had basically strip mined this entire area. And it was, it looked like a, an apocalyptic world. I mean, that's what you look. And he said, huh, they're telling me which one is, which one's destroying the environment. And, and so you kind of look at it and. You don't want to put false motives on people. That that's really, uh, I, you know, yeah, right. like I said, I've had hell since my crystal ball broke, and, and so I, I don't know what people's motivations are. However, 
you can kind of build the picture of what they're trying to do. I mean, I, I look at the, well, we were talking a minute ago, you had mentioned how oil has become the big bad guy. Well, I, I'm a huge movie fan. It's one of my, I love movies. And, and one of my favorite movies is The Usual Suspects. And one of my favorite lines in that movie is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And well, when you look at the modern world today, I'd like to amend that quote. The greatest trick environmentalist ever pulled was convincing the world that oil was bad. Because that's what we've been under for the last 60 years is constant assault as to the oil industry is bad. When the fact of the matter is, I'd be willing to bet that 90 to 95% of Americans do not even know what the domestic oil industry is. If you went to the average American and said, hey, name one American oil company, most of them would go to Exxon. Most of them would go to one of your majors. When I'm not diminishing Exxon or downing them, but they're not an American company. Just because they're based in Houston doesn't mean they're looking out for America. No, they're looking out for their stockholders, which they should. I have no problem with that. But pull them out of the picture. Well, the true domestic oil and gas industry, 83% of your oil and 90% of your gas is produced by roughly 9,000 independent producing companies. Hmm. And these 9,000 companies average 12 employees or less. That's your domestic oil industry. Interesting. And so, and so when you have everybody going after the oil industry, in their mind, they're looking, oh, Exxon, look at all these prices, right? Look at the prices falling. Yeah. Let's hammer it. Exxon can handle it. BP can handle Exxon, it. Exxon, BP, yeah. Marathon. Whereas look at the, at the price crash here. And on it was April 20th. That was where our world changed. Yeah. April 20th, 2020 is when the oil industry suffered the greatest value loss in per barrel of oil that we've ever seen. Yeah. Well, when yeah. most people looked at it, they didn't understand that the damage was not to your majors. Your damage was not to your larger independents. The damage was to all those mom and pop companies hmm. because all of a sudden prices dropped below you know, here's what we saw coming. And this is really what we built up for. Before the pandemic, we saw Saudi Arabia and Russia really going to war with the American energy industry, with our shale industry. Because what happened in 1960, the seven sisters controlled oil pricing. It was your, your seven major companies. They manipulated prices. Sometimes they did it for the government. Sometimes they did it on their own. But they were the major powers when it came to what oil prices would be. Well, in 1960, OPEC was created. And OPEC's sole purpose was really to build a cartel to combat the Seven Sisters. And that's really where the power balance had been for roughly the last 60 years. Now, whether you like President Trump or not is irrelevant. What he did by turning the shale industry loose and getting America producing as much oil as we were, all of a sudden, he took the power from OPEC. All of a sudden, they didn't have near as much say and what the price per barrel would be. And so that's what we saw coming. We saw OPEC and OPEC plus, we saw really Saudi Arabia and Russia increasing production because what they wanted to do, they wanted to push that price down below $50 a barrel. Dirty little secret. Most of your shale industry need 50 per barrel just, yep. to, just to pay their bills. Yep. They make their profit on anything above 50. And so what we saw Russia and Saudi Arabia doing was pushing that price down to 40, maybe 45 a barrel, and putting our shale industry in trouble. Well, 
Once again, another dirty little secret, Russia and Saudi Arabia need 50 also. But we were betting that they were saying we can last longer than the shale industry. And, and so that's really what we started building our game plan because we knew there would be buying opportunities when prices got below and companies that built their world around $50, $55 oil, all of a sudden oil's at 40 45 we knew there'd be a window to pick up properties and pick up reserves. Yeah. And so that's what we were gearing up for. And then all of a sudden, April 20th happened. And when prices crashed, while the trigger was different than what we thought it would be, the result was the same. In fact, it took what we thought would be an 18 to 24 month period and it crunched it down into 30 days. And so all of a sudden you have the price fall. I remember, I, heck, I was sitting in my office watching Fox Business and I'm looking at the, at the price of oil on the bottom right side of the screen. And that morning I sat there and I watched it go from 35-ish to 30, 25, 20. When it got to $17 a barrel, no, not 17, when it got to $8 a barrel, when it got to $8 a barrel, I'd had enough. I couldn't watch it anymore. Got up, left, went, got in my truck, drove to Arby's a couple blocks down the road, turned around and came back. I was gone maybe 20 months. I walked back in my office. I looked back up at the TV and I saw 40. I was like, oh man, good, okay. It flipped around, good, okay. We're Well, by the time I sat down at my desk, I realized, hang on, there was a little line in front of that 40. <laughs> and, and at that particular moment, now, we had two partnerships running at that time that in the first two distributions, the partners had roughly 60, 70% of their money back in their pocket. I mean, we were, it, we were, we were killing it. I mean, we were, we were about to raise a bunch of money to continue drilling. And then all of a sudden, the bottom fell out of the market. Well, at that point in time, if anybody on the planet had the right to curl up in the corner, start crying and sucking their thumbs, it was us. Yeah. You know, we, we, that was a lot of money we just lost by that, by that by the prices uh, dropping like that. Well, while that was a bad moment, it actually led to the best moment I've ever had in my almost 30 years in oil. Because it that, and if you take yourself back to that moment, remember, most companies were battening down the hatches, were pulling in their sales. Everybody was really gearing up to withstand the storm. And we sat down and I me, my dad, my brother, JP, we kind of sat down around the, the desk in the office or the, the conference table in the office and said, all right, guys, what do you want to do? And it came a moment where we said, hey, nothing's changed. This is the exact scenario we had laid out when we started this journey. It's just a little faster. And so at that point, when everybody else was battening down the hatches, we opened up our sales and we started acquiring properties. And in the last two years, it's what? 19 different acquisitions that encompasses two complete salt domes, bottom side, about 20 million barrels in reserve, top side, about 120 million barrels in reserve, that that's what we've locked up over the last two years. And we're, we're nowhere near done because the damage has been done. The companies that were going out of business, they're still going out of business. The companies that were just hanging on by a lifeline, they're still hanging on just by a lifeline because there were really two compounding effects that happened. Yeah, that's, that's first, interesting because oil now is is at what 110. Uh, yeah, it was a hundred and uh, it was a hundred and six like two minutes ago. Okay, hundred hundred and six. I mean, it's it's totally recovered beyond recovered. Um, and so, how are these companies now 
I, I would have thought the companies that were struggling to make it, they would now be just, just beautiful, right? Everything would be rainbows and sunshine because things are good or, or all, me. all else being equal. Yes, you're absolutely right. Okay. But that's where the, that's where the compounding effect happened because the first wave was when prices crashed. Yeah. When prices crashed the first time, your companies that had financial stability, your companies that were flush financially, they were able to choke in their wells and ride the wave out. And when prices came back, they figured they'd be good. Mm -hmm. Well, now you take that crash. If the company wasn't financially solvent, if the company wasn't sitting on good financial ground, it put them out of business. There was nothing they could do yep. to right the ship and they couldn't make it. And so now you take that first effect and you had a whole percentage of companies that just uh, basically disappeared overnight. Well, now you have the second factor. And the second factor was lockdowns. So all of a sudden now you have all these companies, not only are they having to shut in, but now they had to send their workers home. Yeah. And then we paid them more money to stay home mm -hmm. than for them to come back to the field. So a lot of them couldn't get their workers back out in the fields. Next thing you know, they're in trouble too. And that's where the second crash has happened is now you're starting to see a lot of these companies, even with prices at 100, they couldn't get their people back out there quick enough to get their wells going. Now, you have some companies that were financial, they were able to pay their people more, get them back out there. You know, you had some companies that financially could handle it, but a large percentage of the companies didn't get taken out because of the crash of prices. They got taken out because they couldn't get people out there to work their fields. And so now you have, uh, now this is kind of getting in the weeds of oil and, and I don't want to, I don't want to bore you with it. I'll, yeah. I'll kind of give you my reader's digest thumb sketch of it. Basically in oil and gas, every company starts doing what we call chasing oil. You have a, a geologist, you have a group of guys, they put some money together, they want to drill a prospect. So sure. they form a company and, and they go drill that well. Well, for 99% of your oil companies, that's the end. They miss the well, can't raise any more money. Eventually, out of, out of business sign goes in their front window. Well, every now and then a company hits that well and they found what we call job security. And their job is secure for however long it takes them to develop that field. It might take them a year, it might take them 10 years. But they have work as long as they're drilling in that field. Well, during that time, they're looking for other prospects. So when they're done developing this first field, they leapfrog to the next field and start developing it. And then they do the same thing, and they do it a couple of times throughout the years. You know, all of a sudden, you have a 70-year-old man, 75-year-old man. He's a successful old man. He's made a bunch of money. His partners have made a bunch of money. And, and he's discovered five, six, ten different fields. However, he spent his whole career chasing oil. And, and what I mean by that is he had to produce everything he found to keep the machine going. Now, that's where the vast majority of your oil companies spend their entire careers. They spend their careers chasing oil and producing what they find. Now, every now and then a company gets fortunate and they jump out of that chasing oil stage. Now, there's no academic pedigree. And this is just really a bunch of old country boys who have spent 30 years in the business. This is our, our philosophy and our views on how the industry works. And, and so once you jump out of that chasing oil stage, you get into what we call the producing oil stage. Now, really, the only difference is not that you're going to hit every well you drill. This is oil and gas. You're going to miss wells. There's no way around it. If anybody ever calls you and guarantees you something in oil and gas, they're lying to you. Hang up on them. There are no guarantees. And so the, really the main difference between a producing company is the fact that when they drill a well, they know the oil's there. 
They still have to get down and get it out, but they're not speculating on whether the oil's there or not. Well, in addition to that, they have enough reserves behind pipe that they can utilize those reserves to acquire more reserves. They get in the true oil and gas business. You take uh, our Choctaw Salt Dome, the dome where it's in Louisiana near Baton Rouge that we're developing right now. There's about estimated about 30 million barrels of oil sitting between roughly eight, 9,000 feet and 15,000 feet. Well, that's not something we really, that's not our bailiwick. That, that's not uh, what we focus on. And so just because we don't focus on it doesn't mean that that oil's not there. So what we'll do is we'll take that oil, we'll talk to other companies that do have properties that are in our lane, that what we like doing, that they don't like doing. We open up our inventory to them, they open up their inventory to us. All of a sudden, we've utilized our reserves to acquire more reserves. Hmm. That's and, and that's that's where you get to the point now. Sw- swapping, you, you're, you're swapping oil rights, basically. That- well, you look at and you say, basically, hey, we know, like right now, we have a group that's mm-hmm. uh, a group of landowners that own one of the properties that we purchased in Louisiana, that these guys are traditional oil guys. They've been doing it for 25 years. Mm-hmm. However, they like deeper wells. They don't like messing with salt dumps. We like we like salt dumps. It's hard drilling. It's difficult. There's a lot of oil there. And, and we're willing to do the work it takes to get that oil. I kind of look at it. The only thing standing between us and producing a million barrels of oil is hard work. Well, golly, we can control working hard. Yep. Let's get out there and do it. Well, a lot of guys don't want to do that. They, they like the deeper wells. And so we look at them and say, okay, we have prospects from 8,000 to 15,000 feet. Come drill them. You yep. pay them, you drill them. We'll keep a piece of it. You keep the rest. Yep. And at the same time, they open up their inventories to us. Yep. And they say, hey, we own six different salt domes on about 200,000 acres. If you all come develop these, we'll keep a piece of it and you all do the rest. Yep. And so that it, it's really just a negotiation. It's, uh, it. you know, it's, it's not complicated. You're, you're basically just horse training. That's doing business, man. That's the, yeah. I, I love that. Um, I got so many questions for you. We, we don't have a, a lot more time, but. Uh, I want to dive into. I want to dive into the tax benefits of oil of the for an for an investor. Um, you know what? I know there's a ton of great tax benefits. Let's let's dive in a bit. I, and obviously, you're not a CPA, and and so you're not giving CPA advice here. But uh, from from your uh, understanding, what are the tax benefits? Well, you you did the the CYA statement <laughs> first because hey, yeah, that was the first thing I was gonna say is. I'm not a CPA. I can just kind of give you a general rule of thumb. Yeah. Uh, typically what I do, if my partners have in-depth questions on taxes, I line the CPAs up and let yeah. the CPAs talk tax together. Now, general rule of thumb, you have a, a direct participation program where you're drilling wells, whether it's a Reg D-506C, whether it's a Reg D-506B, whatever form, however you want to structure your deal, your intangible drilling cost, or you can write that as an above-line deduction, <clears throat> basically for easy math, it's roughly 30, 35% of what you invest. So you put a hundred thousand dollars in a drilling program yep. above line deduction. Oh, you make uh, let's just say you make 250,000 a year. You put a hundred thousand in a drilling program. If your intangible drilling costs are roughly 35%, well, that's 35,000 that you now don't have to pay taxes on. So you basically look at your 400,000 or 250,000 that you've, that you earn that year, well, now Uncle Sam doesn't look at it like you made two hundred fifty thousand. If you have thirty five thousand in write offs above line deduction, now he looks at that two fifty like it's two fifteen. Yep. And so, cash on cash wise, you'd roughly save about thirty thirty five thousand dollars in what you would pay in taxes. Yep. And so, 
when you sit down and put that together, now I go out and drill a well. Well, heck, if I get you 65% of your money back to you, you've essentially broken even. And so my goal is to get above 65%. I want you to be plus one every time. If I can get you plus one every time, there's going to be some plus 10, plus 15, plus 20s in there. We just don't know which ones they're going to be. Like uh, we just got done drilling a well. It's one of our first wells out there. And we were offsetting a well that from one pay sand produced about a million barrels of oil. And so when we drilled down and we got to that pay sand, we hit it. I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful looking pay sand. Well, we had another couple potential sands below that, that we needed to go about a thousand feet to make sure. Well, when we got done, the number 11 sand, the one we hit at the bottom, hasn't been produced by anybody on this salt dome. Now, they've been drilling in this salt dome for 100 years now. They've been producing around this salt dome for 100 years, and we hit a zone that nobody else has produced out there. Hmm. All told, that one well has about 230 feet of pay on it, and there's no telling what this well will produce. Now, is it a guarantee? No, we still have to get out there, put it in production. There's still work to do, but I, I'll put it to you this way. When you have geologists and you have engineers that have been drilling in this area for 30, 40 years, not bat an eye and look at it and say, man, this might be the best log I've ever seen on this Choctaw salt dome. And you have a salt dome that's produced 25, 30 million barrels over the last 100 years, you're sitting in a pretty good position. And, and so now you take it and all of a sudden you take the tax benefits. My partners aren't playing on full dollars. And, and so it's just really, uh, I kind of look at it this way. Uncle Sam doesn't do it because he likes us. He does it because we need the oil. Yeah. That, well, that's that's what, why you get the tax that's benefits. That's what I think is funny. You know, it's, it, there wouldn't be tax benefits if the government wanted to stop using oil, right? The, the government understands the oil industry is critical, yet is attacking the oil industry at the same time and, and, and naming it the bad guy. I, I just, I don't understand exactly what's going on. And I don't know if anybody does. <laughs> I'm sure some people do, but it's just, it's just interesting to me. There's these tax benefits to incentivize oil companies and investors, yet there's these attacks. It, it just, it's just weird. It's just weird. It's a I shell mean, game. The same I mean, thing it really goes, is. The, the same thing happens maybe to a lesser extent. Certainly the same thing happens in my industry, right? There's, a, 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 you know, real estate, I buy apartment buildings. You know, so, you know, look, we're getting slammed all the time from the government yet. we yeah. get these amazing tax benefits, same, same type of thing. And it's like, you're incentivizing us to create more buildings, to, produce better buildings, yet you're slamming us at the same time. <laughs> it's just how it is. No, nah, it, it, I mean, it, it's things that make you scratch your head and go, what? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Y you know, I, I was driving around the other day and, uh, oh, I had the news on, I forget who was running, but I, it, it was one of those moments that I sat down and I, I was like, really, is this what it's about? <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, and not to get philosophical, not, but the human being is a miracle. The, the fact that that we're here and our conscious yeah. thought, and that's not getting religious. That's just looking at really who we're, look at all the species of animals mm -hmm. on earth. Yeah. And there's not another one like us. Nope. And, and, so some, and so I'm sitting in my truck and I'm thinking, man, surely there's another reason we're here yeah. than this. You know, that, that, you know, it just, it, it doesn't make sense because, mm -hmm. oh, I forget who I was listening to the other day. And they were talking about the decisions that the current administration is making. And he said, you know, I'm not saying they're trying to destroy America, but if you were wanting to destroy America, what would you do differently? 
you know? And, and so when you sit down and think about it, you know, I go back to the try to, I, I don't want to ascribe motives to anybody. Well, look at your major oil companies. That 700 billion that we're talking about that was going into upstream development and is now going into green energy. Well, if Jay Burr in Bowling Green, Kentucky, I'm not a rocket scientist. I got a, I got a bucket load of common sense, but if I can sit down on my computer and I can research and I can come to the conclusion that there is no green energy that's an immediate replacement for oil. And so now I look at these oil companies and I say, well, why would they be investing so much money in green energy if I can see that there's no, there's no future in it immediately? Yeah. Well, it can only be one of two reasons. I'm an Occam's razor guy. The most common explanation is most likely the accurate one. And so when you sit down and look at it, you say, okay, there's really one of two reasons they would do it. The first one, okay, maybe they are altruistic. Maybe they have no problem destroying their company. Maybe they have no problem losing their, their clients, their stockholders' money. Maybe they have no problem destroying the industry that made them who they are, all in the name of saving Earth. That could be their reasoning. They, they could be doing that. Like I said, I'm not going to guess what they're feeling. Or number two. They see exactly what I see. They know that by investing this money in green energy, they're going to, one, get tremendous tax benefits. Two, they're going to get social loving from everybody calling the heroes of the earth because they're willing to invest so much money in green energy. Yeah. But I like the, the, my little dirty little secret saying, the dirty little secret is they know the exact same thing that I do. They know that chances are green energy is not going to work. Well, once this whole exercise is through and they've invested all this money in it and everybody's, and all of a sudden it doesn't work, what's the value of their current holdings going to be? You think it's more valuable at $106 per barrel or at $25 per barrel? Yeah. Because by them doing this, or, or they set the scenario. Yeah. I mean, that they set the scenario where, you know, once again, I don't want to ascribe motives to them, but if I'm betting, I know which one I'm betting on as to why they're doing it. Because it just makes no sense. And so I kind of look at it that uh, in the crazy world we live in, he who owns the oil controls his future. And that's about as simple as I can, as I can put it. And I, I can promise that if things keep going the way they're going, me and my partner is going to be sitting in a pretty good position because we're going to own a lot of oil. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll just say I agree. Um, let's, let's turn a little bit. What, uh, what's a mistake that you guys have, have made or you've made and, and how can our listeners learn from it? I must, you know, I, mm, I've made a bunch of mistakes to pick. My favorite one would be, that'd be kind of difficult. Um, Okay. Uh, and, and this, this is a mistake that I made that wasn't necessarily in my industry, but it taught me more than anything out there. I was newly married, been married a couple years and, uh, I'm not a real estate guy. I mean, I, I know about it. I got pretty good instincts on it, but it's not, it's not my, my bailiwick. It's not what I've focused my attention on. And, uh, so I decided to build a home. I, I mean, you know, the real estate market was going good. This was early two thousands. And so I'm going to build this house and I'm going to sell it. And, you know, I, I was ready to go. Yep. Well, make a long story short, everything went six ways from, I mean, just went across a hundred different ways. 
I ended up losing about 25, 30,000. I mean, it was a, it was a gut shot. I, heck I'm 26 years old at that point in time. 20s. I mean, that was, yeah, yeah. that was a lot of money for yeah. me to lose. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. boy, it was rough. At that edge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And, and so I, I went to my brother-in-law's house and uh, him and this fellow named Jerry McKinney. Now, Jerry McKinney at one point in time was the number one Oldsmobile salesman in the country mm. based out of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hmm. Now, how he pulled that off, I still don't know. And uh, Jerry's Jerry's since passed away. But uh, so I walk up to him and Jerry and my, my brother-in-law are sitting out on the back porch. And man, I'm so mad. I could bite through nails at this point. I mean, I'm everything had just happened. So it was fresh. It was raw. I mean, so I'm angry. And I walk in and I mean, I'm about to, I, I'd, I'd burn down the house. And Jerry looked at me and says, Jay, I'm going to give you a bit of advice right now. He said, anybody who has made money in their life will say the same thing. If you've made money, you've lost money. The key is, do you lose money the same way twice? He said, just learn from it. And, and that, was a, that was an old bull putting his arm around my shoulder. And she said, hey, relax. Everybody stuck their finger in a light socket every now and then. Just make yeah. sure you don't stick it in the same one twice. <laughs> and, and so learn from your past. I mean, that, that it's kind of cliche as that, it, you know, I, so I saw a quote yesterday, if you don't learn from your past, you're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. Well, man, that, that, that's true. I mean, you look at, well, look at where we're sitting, Pan X. Look at where we're sitting right now. Only reason we're sitting where we're sitting is because we're students of history. It's the greatest story ever told. And every time there is a financial crisis, doesn't matter when, every time there's one, there's a group of people that when it's all said and done, they come out of the other side looking like geniuses. Right. And, and when you look at all of their stories and string them together, there's really only two common characteristics they share. The first is when the crash happened, they had cash in hand. They were financially in a position to do something. Mm. Secondly, when their opportunity presented itself, they had what my dad likes to call the intestinal fortitude yeah. to push their chips in the middle of the table. Yep. And, and so that that's really what, you know, we just followed the path. We stood on the shoulders of giants and just did what they did. We saw an opportunity. We know our industry. And so we pushed our chips in the middle of the table and said, let's go, let's build some. And uh, I mean, I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> we, we've, uh, you know, we, we've, uh, my partners are, are, are making some, some pretty substantial returns and really it's not reinventing the wheel. We're, we're not trying to find the next best thing since sliced bread. We just found a provable pattern that wins and we want to repeat it as many times as possible. Yeah. Give me a, give me a yes or no, uh, oil industry. You, you just told me, uh, 106 a barrel. I believe that's what you said. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it popped off my screen, but yeah, it's, it was 160 minutes ago. Yeah. Roughly. Right. Yeah. Uh, roughly. You know, it was negative 40 two years ago. Um, mm -hmm. is there money to be made in it right now? Or is it going to go back down? If somebody's a, an investor or a potential investor going, should I be investing in oil right now? Or should I wait? Well, that? that has a depends on it. Mm. And, and here, here's what I mean by that. If you're getting involved with the company that has $106 per barrel into it, no, I mean, you got to get more than 106 to make that money. Well, where we're a little different is, oh, my, my dad got in oil and gas in 1973. I wasn't born until 75. And so this is all we've ever known. 
when it comes to, to selling oil and gas deals, I can remember selling them when oil was $8 a barrel. Hmm. And so we have a little different mindset than most of your modern oil people, because over the last 20 years, oil has averaged roughly $60 a barrel. Well, most of these modern oil people got involved in the business when oil was $60 a barrel. And so that's where they, what they built their life around. I still have my life built around $20 oil. And so when we sit down and look at the economics of a deal, we run it at $20 a barrel. And I'm not saying that's what we want. But if we could survive, if we would be okay at $20 a barrel, well, then we're going to be tickled at 40, 60, 80, 100, whatever that multiple is on where oil goes to, we want to base it on the ridiculous. That way, if the ridiculous does happen, we're still covered. And and so that's really when when it looks to making money in oil and gas, like right now, people that invest with us, yeah, they have a shot at making a tremendous amount because we have... On our on the on the acquisitions we've made over the last two two and a half years, I think when you average it out, it's right at eighteen dollars a barrel that we have invested in it. And so you know it's there's and the and the pie is so daggone big. There's enough for everybody to get a piece of it. Yeah. You know, and I, I we have a web. You know, our our email is info at panx.us. If anybody has any questions, look, we are an open book. I I, I only give my partners a couple of guarantees. One, I guarantee if you call me and I by chance don't answer, I'll call you back before I go to bed that night. And if you ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, I'll find it for you. Other than that, this is oil and gas. I'm going to give you everything I have. And win, lose, or draw, I'm going to leave no stone unturned when it comes to trying to make my partner's money. Now, that's not going to guarantee success every time. We have, you know, Like I said, you have wells that'll miss if something happens. That, uh, you listen to now, smart attorneys. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I read a, a, <laughs> you don't a long time. No, you're, no I, man, that's just crazy. If, if you, like I said earlier, if, if you ever hear, I call it the G word. I don't even really say it. I, yeah. I, it, I don't like saying the word. But uh, if if you ever hear anybody say the G word to you, especially in oil, there's no way you can. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no way. Because uh, if you would have asked anybody in the oil industry on April 20th of 2020, Hey, would you bet that oil prices will be at $106 a barrel two years from now? Nobody would bet on that. Now, we would have bet on prices being higher because this is really just playing out what we thought was going to happen anyway. You know, just because uh, just because a talking head gets on the television and says uh, Russia and Ukraine and oil prices are through the roof and how dare them do that, man, they're they're getting you to watch the left hand so you don't see what the right hand's doing. Oh, yeah. Because they, they the don't fundamentals care. don't change. Well, they don't care about anything else than, than other than ratings anyway. So they're trying to, you know, I mean, obviously anything you listen on the news is trying to sell some sort of fear or something. They're, they're just trying to sell. And, and a, yeah. a story sells. You can't have, a, you can't have a, a captive audience if you're not telling a story that's going to captivate the audience. So, Yeah, no, and, and it's amazing how fear... Fear works. Fear and that works great. They figured it out. The news has figured it, which is why I do not watch the news. And if I'm on my social media and I see negative stuff on my social media, I either get rid of that person or I just I get I get it out out because I it's just it just doesn't it does nobody any good. So, all right. No, you're we absolutely wrap right. Up. We've been going Alrighty. for a long time. I really appreciate everything you've said. Uh, this has been a huge, I mean, I've learned a ton so far. And I'm sure my listeners have 
heard a ton. We have a lot of real estate uh, companies on here. We have some business owners. I've never had an oil guy uh, on here. So this is, uh, this has definitely just been a, a lot of uh, learning. And honestly, the questions I've been asking are, are selfish questions just for myself. So hopefully the listeners have been enjoying it as well. I'm sure they have. Um, I've got just a few last questions. Um, what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners, whether it's an oil, whether it's just a business book, what's a favorite book? Oh, think and grow rich. Love it. Love it. You didn't even hesitate. Well, that, that and Atlas shrugged, but Atlas shrugged is a little, uh, that, you got to gear up to read that. I like that one too. (laughs) I listened to Atlas Shrug uh, in the deer hunting stand uh, for for the week of deer hunting. So, (laughs) well, honestly, I think it should be required reading. I I think every every student in America should eventually have to read that book just to probably just to know what it is. Books, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Last question. I ask every guest. And I want to know from you, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Three pillars of wealth creation. The first would be hard work is required. Mm. I, I was watching an interview with Kid Rock the other night. And it was, a, it was a wonderful interview in the sense that they were talking about him moving to Nashville. And they just kind of got into everything that was going on. And Tucker Carlson asked him, he said, if some aspiring actor or some aspiring musician was to come ask you, what's your secret sauce? Kid Rock didn't hesitate. He looked at it and said, I'm going to work harder than you by far. That's the difference. I work harder than everybody else. Love it. And, and so that, that is the key. Nothing is easy and nothing is given to you. And it's You have to work for it. Because had, had you not heard that, and, and we always think these – you know, athletes, these actors, these musicians, all these people that we see just kind of have it. Even, even the million and billionaires, you go, oh, they just had this handed to them. But they don't see the behind the scenes. Yeah, they've got talent. Sure, Kid Rock just it didn't. He, he, you know, you or I maybe couldn't do that, but he worked his butt off to become. Mm-hmm the greatest he didn't become extraordinary by showing up average every day no you got it my dad told me a long time ago son you're gonna pay a price at some point in your life everybody pays a price when are you gonna pay that price that's the only thing you have control of are you gonna pay it pay that price early or are you gonna pay it late i'd rather play pay that price early and do everything hard and get it out of the way where you can coast on to the end but you're gonna pay a price it's not if it's when and uh, so, you know, go, going back to the to the pillars of the hard work. Secondly, I, I've never really kind of I've never really thought about the three keys to success or the three pillars of success. I, I would say make sure that when you take that hard work, that every morning when you brush your teeth, that you can be proud of that guy you're looking at in the mirror. Mm. And, and everybody has a kind. Everybody knows whether they're doing good or wrong. That you know it internally, and you cannot look that guy in the mirror and lie to him. You know if you are. And, and so it's so a hard work. Be content with the person in front of you. And the last one, control what you can control. Yeah. There, there are certain things in life that uh, are random as is. You got enough of those you got to deal with. Control what you can control, and everything else will take care of itself. Uh, I look at my boys, and I say, and, and my daughters, but my daughters really aren't in the philosophy, the philosophy stage yet, but 
they're getting there. But I look at my boys and I say, look, guys, if there is a bad situation, if something's going on, the first thing you do, what can you do to fix it? Now, when you've gone through the list of everything you can do to fix it, when you reach the end of it, at that point, stop worrying about it. You've done everything you can do. Turn it over to God. He'll take care of it at that point. But control what you can control. If there's something you can do to fix it, do it. Fix it. If there's not, there's nothing you can do. But control what you can control and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, I I love it. And so that, that would be the three I'd lean towards. Yeah, I, I, I love them. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, definitely great piece of advice. The, the last one, I mean, look, you can't control the weather. So if it's cold, put a sweatshirt on, put a jacket mm-hmm. on, right? I mean, you, like that, that's the, that's the philosophy. Like, look, if, if you can't, if you think you can control what is going to be coming economically in the future, we can't control macroeconomics. We can control what we're doing in our business, right? We, mm-hmm. we can't control how other people are showing up in our lives, but we can control who is showing up in our lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I love it. I love it. I, lo- I love everything you've said. I really appreciate you being on the show, providing such a, a ton of value to our listeners. Um, how can people reach out? How can people learn more about what you guys have going on and potentially have a conversation? Oh, uh, info at panx.us is probably the easiest way. If you have any questions, if somebody listening has a question that, that wasn't asked today or they doesn't matter if the little hair on your pinky toe says it's a question and you don't ask it, shame on you. That's what we're here for. And so go to info at panx.us or you can go to our website, panx.us. And uh, we're, we're there. We're on Facebook. We're, we're on LinkedIn. We're just pull up panx.us and, and we'll be there. Give me a like 30 second or, or really short answer of why somebody would consider investing in your company or company like yours versus just investing in a larger company like an Exxon. Investing with a company like mine, you have direct access to the people who are making the decisions. It's not something where you're having to guess on what they're going to do. You're not going to have to guess on our motivations. You're going to see exactly what we're doing. We're an open book. And I kind of look at it this way. There are three factors involved. The first one is yours, and that's the money. The second two are mine. That is, who are we? And is the program economically feasible? Is it something that makes sense to you? Mm -hmm. If we have a positive on all three factors, we'll do business. If you see that we're the kind of people you want to do business with and our program makes sense to you, You'll want to jump in head first. If we have a negative on any one of those three factors, it could be, I want to talk to my wife, want to talk to my lawyer, too risky. It could take any shape, form, or fashion you want it to take. But when you boil it back down, one of those three factors was negative. And so that's what we love. I love for my partners to get in. Man, ask me every question you have. This is your money we're talking about. If you are not 100% comfortable with who we are and what we're doing, I'll be the first one to tell you to keep it. Now, if you do see what we're doing and understand it, I think it'll be one of the best decisions you ever made. However, I'm not going to twist your arm or yank your hair or push you through a door you don't want to go through. I'm going to show you what we're doing, show you what it means, show you the ups and the downs. And if it makes sense to you, you'll want to hit your wagon to ours. If not, hey, doesn't mean we won't be friends. It just means we won't be investing together. Yeah, love it. Love it. Great answer. All right, RJ, again, really appreciate it. You have a fantastic rest of the day. Todd, thank you much. Have a great one.
Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.